0: Good morning. It's a blessing to be with you all. Uh, it's an increasing blessing for our family to feel like we have a church home here in Raleigh. Um, as Matt said, we're doing a little two-week mini-series uh, looking at Isaiah 60 and 61. I uh, told me you guys have been working through the book of Acts and focusing a lot about the nature of the outreach of the church. and And really what we're doing is pausing to consider some of the most foundational Old Testament promises and principles that ultimately are fulfilled in Christ and then get worked out through the church. And In effect, if you want to understand what it is as Christians we're supposed to be doing, you need to understand what it is Christ has done for us. Um, so that's been our focus. Last week we looked at Isaiah 60 talked about the goal of outreach. This week we'll talk about the nature of outreach in Isaiah 61. And let me begin by sharing a story. Uh, A while ago, I was talking to a Sunday school class. We were talking about bullies. Uh, I shared about a bully that I knew in junior high. His name was Darren. He was in my grade, seventh and eighth grade, but just an enormous kid. Um, He fixed his eye upon me. Uh, and so at things like in recess, he'd see me across the schoolyard, and when my back was turned, he would get into a dead sprint as fast as he could and then lower his shoulder into the small of my back at full speed, um, just crushing me to the ground. One, one day, I was walking down the road after school, and it was caterpillar season. Uh, I grew up in western Washington, great caterpillars there. And, uh, and he would walk behind me and pick up caterpillars, because they were just everywhere, and there were these little prickly ones, and they'd roll into a ball when you picked them up, and then he would just pelt them against my back as I walked down the street, and they would explode in this mess of caterpillar guts and itchy prickles. Uh, So he wasn't a super nice kid. Um, He also had a horrible father. Um, I think he endured much worse at home than he dished out at school. He was full of anger and hurt and fear, um, though I didn't know any of that at the time. Uh, Well, after the Caterpillar incident, I told a good friend of mine about it named Jeremy. Um, Jeremy was a year older than us, um, well known at school because people were scared of him. Uh, He was a vicious fighter with some, well, looking back, some anger management issues. Um, And he talked to Darren for me, and Darren never bothered me again. Um, I... (laughs) Uh yeah. So here's my question. <laughs> was the problem of Darren solved? I, I certainly felt like it was at the time. He wasn't bullying me anymore. But was it truly solved? Had, had anything actually changed? And no. He was still the same kid with the same anger and hurt. One symptom had been dealt with, the one that was impacting me but the underlying problem was untouched. Well, today we're looking at Isaiah 61. And many of the chapters leading up to this one in Isaiah are about the exile of Judah into Babylon. God promises he's going to send them into exile because of their sin, and he promises he's going to bring them back. And if you turn later in the Old Testament, you can look at a book like Nehemiah and learn all about the experience of the Israelites after the exile. Is there back in Jerusalem and trying to rebuild the wall and restore the city? And so let me ask the same question. At that point, was the problem of the exile solved? So before we launch into Isaiah 61, I want to glance back at Isaiah 60 that we looked at last week. And imagine that you are in exile in Babylon, waiting, suffering, there against your will. And you read Isaiah 60. And you read things like this. Verse 2, though you are in darkness, the glory of the Lord will rise upon you. Verse 3, nations will come to your light. Verse 4, your sons will come from afar. Your daughters will be carried on the hip. That's a promise you're going to bring your kids, your whole family, back to Jerusalem. The exile will end. Verse 5, the wealth of nations will come to you. It's on and on it goes. They'll have peace and abundance. This is all stuff we looked at last week. Verse 21, your people shall be all righteous; they shall possess the land forever. If you're in exile and you're reading that, what do you think? Like that's your hope. You you cling to that. Look what God has promised. And then finally, the day comes. Right? Persia conquers Babylon. And Cyrus, the new king, sends the exiles back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple and the city. For 70 years, they have been holding on to passages like Isaiah 60. And now it seems God is fulfilling it. So what are you thinking as you travel back to Jerusalem? What are you expecting? Well, now imagine you're living in Nehemiah's time and you read Isaiah 60. It's been almost a hundred years since the initial exiles returned. And as you read that passage, what do you think? They're free from exile. But besides that, all these blessings and promises of Isaiah 60, they seem light years away. Why are they not experiencing this? See, when we're dealing with significant problems, we tend to focus on the immediate cause. We want to fix what's wrong in the moment. But all the bad stuff in the world, why does it happen in the first place? We have to ask that question for ourselves personally. And we have to ask it cosmically. Israel's sin and rebellion will force them into exile. In God's grace, he brings them back. Has the problem truly been solved? Evil, pride, the desire to dominate others, they lead to wars all around the world. You can look now at Syria or Iraq or some countries in Africa and the Far East, and you want the wars to stop. Maybe the UN will put enough pressure on one side to get them to back down. Maybe somebody will win, subdue the other. Peace returns. Many people will rejoice. Has anything truly been solved? Put yourself in the book of Nehemiah, the mid 400s BC. As you stand on the wall to rebuild it, we're told holding a trowel in one hand and a weapon in the other so you can protect yourself against Sanballat and his army, who wants to come kill you? How do you feel about verse 10 of Isaiah 60? Foreigners shall build up your walls and their kings shall minister to you. Or as you hear that the surrounding nations are all plotting to come destroy you, how do you feel about verse 11? Your gates shall be open continually. Day or night they shall not be shut. You won't have a thing to worry about. You see, there is an exile underneath the exile a bigger problem underneath all of our other problems. And it is this problem that Christ came to solve. And it is the outworking of these promises that shapes the nature and outreach of the church. As we work through Isaiah 61, we will learn who, what, why, and how God promises to fix the fundamental problems facing each one of us and our world as a whole. So let's read it and we'll launch in Isaiah 61. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. They shall build up the ancient ruins, they shall raise up the former devastations, they shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations." Strangers shall stand and tend your flocks, foreigners shall be your ploughmen and vine dressers, but you shall be called the priests of the Lord. They shall speak of you as the ministers of our God. You shall eat the wealth of nations, and in their glory you shall boast. Instead of your shame there shall be a double portion, instead of dishonor, they shall rejoice in their lot. Therefore in their land they shall possess a double portion, they shall have everlasting joy. For I the Lord love justice, I hate. Robbery and wrong. I will faithfully, faithfully give them their recompense, and I will make an everlasting covenant with them. Their offspring shall be known among the nations and their descendants in the midst of the peoples. All who see them shall acknowledge them, that they are an offspring the Lord has blessed. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. For as the earth brings forth its sprouts, and as a garden causes what is sown in it to sprout up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all the nations. First, verses 1 to 4, who? We see that God's answer to the greatest problems facing our world is a person. And in verse 1, that person begins to speak. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me, he says. And we've met him before. Back in chapter 11, we were introduced to this great Davidic kingly messianic figure. And there, we were told, the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. And this descendant of David, we're told back in chapter 11, will bring God's kingdom to the entire world. He'll rule with justice. He is a powerful figure. And then in chapter 42, we're introduced to another figure, the servant. And again, we read, I have put my spirit upon him. But this figure is very different than the Messiah promised earlier. He doesn't lift up his voice. He's gentle. He'll be a nurse to the sick. And that creates a great tension in the book of Isaiah. Because we're told about this powerful, kingly figure, the Messiah, who will bring justice in the first half of the book. And then in the second half of the book, we're told about this humble, gentle figure, the servant, who will be like a lamb led to the slaughter. And it's not clear who are these two. How do they relate to each other? And Isaiah 61 tells us they are one and the same. The the servant who will bind up the brokenhearted is also the victor who will release the captives. The one who will bring comfort to the mourners is also the one who will bring down vengeance upon God's enemies. And I think this is perhaps Isaiah's greatest theological breakthrough, that the servant is the Messiah. And just look at the incredible variety of things this man will do. In the first four verses, we were told that we told he will fix all of these things. Poverty, sadness, slavery and oppression, the righting of wrongs, that is right, vengeance, grief and mourning, sin, ruined cities. He will fix everything that is broken injustice, sin, oppression, fraud, poverty, sickness, everything that has been torn down because of human sin. We're told this one guy will restore. There is something of cosmic significance about the work of this man. On the one hand, you see it in just the variety and scale of the things we're told that he'll accomplish, but you also see it in the language used verse 4 says, because of this man, God's people will build up the ancient ruins. Now that word that gets translated ancient is simply the word eternal. Isaiah uses it to speak of God's everlasting covenant, or the fact that God's word will stand forever, or that God is the everlasting God. He'll use it again in verses 7 and 8 of our chapter to speak of eternal realities. And at times, it can be used figuratively to speak of things that are ancient. You can't simply translate it as old. So why does Isaiah speak of eternal ruins? It's because there are ways that our world is essentially broken and has been ever since we were cast out of the garden. In the context of Isaiah 61, there is an exile under the exile. There is a brokenness that all of the ruins of our world point to. And it is on this deeper brokenness that the final chapters of Isaiah focuses. So yes, God will rescue them from the exile in Babylon, but that's not enough because something more is wrong. And so something more must be done to fix it. And we're told that a man will come who will restore the eternal ruins of our world. And so the first thing we learn is that God's essential answer to our problems and the problems of our world is not a system of belief or a government, it's not a philosophy, it's not a kind of education, not a process of peacemaking, it's not a program, it is a person. And I think to a great extent, because of how God has built us, we innately understand that. Look at our literature, our myths, our movies. What is at the center of almost every great story? a hero, a rescuer, someone who will come and set things right, right? Sleeping Beauty waits for the prince, David rescues the army from the Philistines, Attila leads the Huns, the Turks look to Ataturk and Mehmet. When you're in trouble, when you're desperate, what do you look for? A new idea? An intriguing philosophy? No. You look for someone who has the resources To help you, the exiles had returned from Babylon. They're free. But so much remained the same. Their fundamental position was not altered. They still lived in a broken world, trapped by their own sin, and in hostile relationships. Because the one who could rescue them from the great human exile of sin and death had not yet come, the problem had not been truly solved. The answer was a person. That's our first section. The next section, 5 to 7, tells us what. What will God do to fix what's wrong in our world? Well, we're told, in a nutshell, he will bring about a reversal of the present reality, and that in two very distinct ways. The first reversal has to do with blessing in the place of curse. Right? From the very beginning, God had told mankind, if you turn away from me, you will die. If God actually is the source of all life and blessing, then to turn away from him would mean to be cut off from life and blessing. And ever since that initial rebellion, we've been living under the curse of death. The history of our world testifies that that is true. Israel's own history is a picture of that reality. For years and years, they've lived in shame and dishonor. Here, God promises them joy and blessing. This is the reversal of the curse the undoing of the fall of mankind into sin. But the second part of the reversal is different. It it has to do with the position of God's people in relation to the rest of the peoples of the world. Instead of the other nations oppressing and mocking Israel, we're told they'll be vindicated and victorious. That to assault and denigrate the people God has chosen is to assault God himself. And that means that the vindication of God's people is a part of the vindication of God. We we talked about that at some length last week. And Isaiah here proclaims that the day is coming when foreigners will serve God's people, tending their flocks and vines. And that leads to an obvious question. And in case you weren't here last week, I'll ask it again because it's important. Is, Is he saying that the oppressed becomes the oppressor? Will humiliated Israel rise up and humiliate others? Will God's people be freed from slavery so that they can enslave others? Because that is exactly how real life works, right? The Germans commit horrible atrocities as they march into Russia in World War II. What happens when the tables are turned? The Russians repaid them in kind and then some, raping and pillaging whole cities as they marched on Berlin. The part of the, of the struggle that international leaders as they think about how to resolve the conflict in Syria. The current regime has done some pretty awful things, but there's not a lot of hope that the opposition would be any better. Jerry Sitzer talks about this dynamic on a very, very personal level in his book, A Grace Disguised. A drunk driver had killed his mom and his wife and a young daughter. And he wrote later about what it was like to walk with his remaining children through the grief and loss. At one point, he writes this. In one instance, David, then seven, crawled up on my lap late at night, long after his normal bedtime. At first, he just sat there. Then, hesitatingly, he began to express rage at that drunk driver. He cried with anguish. He said that he wanted to punish that man and make him hurt as much as he had hurt us. He said he wanted to make the whole world suffer so everyone would feel as bad as he did. After he stopped crying, we sat in silence for a while. And then he said, you know, Dad, I bet someone hurt him too, like maybe his parents. That's why he did something to hurt us. And then I bet someone else hurt his parents. It just keeps going on and on. When will it ever stop? Isaiah tells us. Well, he is clear that Israel will be vindicated, look at the outcome he envisions. Verse 6 the nations will call God's people ministers and priests of the Lord. Meaning that God's people will bring truth and salvation to all the nations. That's the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham, that through his descendants, his blessing would go to all the nations of the earth. And so Isaiah says in verse 7, that the nations will have everlasting joy, which is exactly what he promised Israel multiple times earlier in the book. That promise made to Israel is extended here to all the nations. He says Israel will receive a double portion. And then he says exactly the same thing of the nations of the earth. And listen, don't take that for granted. Though this perspective, though this utter lack of tribalism is utterly consistent in the Bible, it is unprecedented and unparalleled in ancient religions and worldviews. There is nobody who believed that their God would seek to bring salvation and blessing to all their outsider enemies. You find it here. You find it nowhere else in known literature. When God's people are vindicated, the result is not the subjugation of the world. It is the reconciliation of the world. In the place of enmity, there's peace and mutual blessing. And because there's only one true God, that must involve the nations coming to submit to the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. There is no other. But they don't come in as slaves. They come in as co-heirs of the promises. See, because of our selfishness, we tend to view the world a lot of times as a zero-sum game. There's only so many pieces of the pie, and so the more pie you eat, the less for me, and I don't like that because I really like pie. Um, And any economist will tell you that's not true in a lot of contexts, but it's how we tend to think. Well, Isaiah tells us the zero-sum game will end, that the enmity and the competitiveness, the oppression that exists between people in the world will end. So what will God do when he rescues us from the ultimate exile? There will be a full reversal Instead of God standing against us in judgment, he will stand for us in blessing. And instead of us standing against one another in competition and hostility, we will serve each other in peace. Who will do this? The servant. What will he do? He will reverse all that is broken. And that brings us to our third section, verses 8 to 9. Why? These are remarkable promises Why would God go to the trouble? If the world is so broken, if we as people are so depraved, if our societies are so lost, why wouldn't God just wipe the world clean? I think most of us are so accustomed to speaking of God as Savior that we rarely even ask this question. We just take it as a given, but it's not. Why would God do this? Verse 8. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrong. Simply put, God does not like things the way they are. He will not accept it. He will not leave it alone. It's not enough for him to simply do away with it. God's nature drives him to fix it. And as people who are made in God's image, I would guess just about everyone in this room experiences this. Maybe you see people fleeing their homeland, their lives destroyed, and you know that's not right. That's not the way things are supposed to be. They should be able to live and work in peace. You want to be able to fix it. You you see someone struggling with an eating disorder, a beautiful young person convinced that they're ugly, and, and you want to intervene. You want to be able to help them to see things rightly. You hear of the poor being taken advantage of. 12-year-old girls being sold off as the second and third wives of evil men to be used. And you want to rescue them. You want them to experience the life that God intends. That is not the way things are supposed to be. Um, In the movie Grand Canyon, which is not a great movie, um, a driver's car breaks down in a tough neighborhood. And as the tow truck arrives, gang members are closing in, and the tow truck driver and the leader of the gang have a confrontation. And the driver says this, Man, the world ain't supposed to work like this. Maybe you don't know that, but this ain't the way it's supposed to be. I'm supposed to be able to do my job without asking you if I can. And that dude's supposed to be able to wait with his car without you ripping him off. Everything's supposed to be different than what it is here. Where does that sense come from? Why is it that when we see injustice, we know something is broken? Why do we object to the strong eating the weak? That is certainly not what the natural world teaches us. Annie Dillard wrote about it. She went to live by a little stream called Tinker Creek. She won a Pulitzer Prize for the book she wrote about her experience. And she went because she wanted to learn from nature. And instead, she saw death and oppression, the strong devouring the weak, and then both of them being killed by chance. She gives all kinds of examples. In, in one, she writes this. Look at lacewigs. Lacewigs are those fragile green insects with large, rounded, transparent wings, the larva eat enormous numbers of aphids, the adults made in a fluttering rush of instinct, lay eggs and die by the millions in the first cold snap of fall. Sometimes, when a female lays her fertile eggs on a green leaf, she's hungry. She pauses in her lane, turns around, and eats her eggs one by one, then lays some more and eats them too." Looking at the world in its fullness, she draws this analogy. She says, say you're the manager of the Southern Railroad, and you figure you need about three engines for a stretch of track. It's a mighty steep grade, so at fantastic effort and expense, you have your shops make 9,000 engines. Each engine must be fashioned just so, every rivet and bolt secure, and then you send out all 9,000 on the runs. But no one's manning the switches. The engines crash and collide, derail, jump, jam, burn. At the end of the massacre, you have three engines, which is what the run could support in the first place. There are few enough of them that they can stay out of each other's paths. You go to your board of directors and you show them what they've done. And what are they going to say? They're going to say, that's the heck of a way to run a railroad. Is it a better way to run a universe? Evolution loves death more than it loves you or me. This is easy to write, easy to read, and hard to believe. The words are simple, the concept clear, but you don't believe it, do you? Nor do I. How could I when we're both so lovable? Are my values then so diametrically opposed to those that nature preserves? This is the key point. I had thought to live by the side of the creek in order to shape my life to its free flow. But I seem to have reached a point where I must draw the line. Look, cock robin may die the most gruesome of slow deaths. Nature is no less pleased. The sun comes up, the creek rolls on, and the survivors still sing. I cannot feel that way about your death, nor you about mine, nor either of us about the robins. We value the individual, and nature values him, not a whit. It looks for the moment as though I may have to reject this creek life unless I want to be utterly brutalized. This direction of thought brings me abruptly to a fork in the road where I stand paralyzed, unwilling to go on, for both ways lead to madness. Either this world, my mother, is a monster, or I myself am a freak." And in essence, what she's saying is this. Just look around you. Is anything more natural than for the strong to prey on the weak? Of course not. Lions don't hunt other lions. They hunt cute little antelopes, and they look for the sick wounded ones at that. So why do we object when people do that? Why do we know that is not the way things are supposed to be? Well, it's because... That is not the way things are supposed to be. And though we are deep in sin, we have not completely lost touch with the nature of our God. I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrong. God does not accept, will not accept the current state of things. He will fix it. And that brings us to our last two verses. How? How will God do this? And simply we're told he will bring righteousness. He will bring it to individuals and he will bring it to the whole world. Verse 10, he has covered me with the robe of righteousness. That is justification. How will God rescue us from our personal sin? He will cover us with his own righteousness. Well, how exactly will the servant do that? The word instead is critical in our passage especially if you're familiar with the previous servant songs in Isaiah. Verse 3, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning. Verse 7, instead of your shame, there shall be a double portion. Meaning we're told persistently the servant will take away what we deserve and give us what he deserves, which is exactly what we were told about him in chapter 53, where we read, he was pierced for our transgressions, He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and by his wounds we are healed. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That is substitution. He stands in our place so that we can stand in his. That's what the hero does, right? He gives his life to save the other. But this is not just for individuals, and this is not just for Israel. This is how we're told God will bring his blessing to the whole world. Verse 11: As the earth brings forth its sprouts, and as a garden causes what is sown in it to sprout up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all the nations. So, how will God fix the world? By sending a servant who will take what we deserve so we can be clothed in the righteousness that he deserves. That is the nature of God's plan of redemption. And so it shapes the nature of our ministry and outreach as Christians. And that all sounds wonderful. But for some, there's lingering doubt. Perhaps you say, okay, I can see why the people in Nehemiah's day were still struggling so much, right? They'd been freed from the exile in Babylon, but this servant hadn't come yet. But what about now? Jesus is the servant, he's come, he's already died, he's already risen. But isn't our experience still an awful lot like the Jews in Nehemiah's day? And many of you probably know that when Jesus began his ministry, the first sermon we know of that he ever gave, he quoted Isaiah 61. He stood up, he read it, and then he said, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. So he's fulfilled it. He's the answer. He's the one. He rescues us from the exile under the exile. So then why is our world still so messed up? Why are we? Well, Jesus pointed to the reason in that initial sermon. He quoted Isaiah, and if you have a a Bible in your hand and you're open to Isaiah 61, read with me, and I'm going to read you what Jesus said. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Did you notice it? That is a strange way to quote scripture. Jesus just stops his quote, stops reading in the middle of a sentence. He's reading Isaiah 61 and right in mid-sentence, he just stops. Because Isaiah says to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. And for God to fix the world, he must do both bring his favor to save his people, and bring his vengeance to right every wrong. And in his first coming, Jesus came to do the former, but not yet the latter. The day of vengeance still awaits us. Now we are in the year of the Lord's favor, the time when God's grace and forgiveness are available to all who will believe. But we await his second coming, the day when he will put a final end to sin and death. And listen, you cannot have an end to brokenness without final judgment. Because it is judgment that does away with sin. And it is sin that causes all the problems. And that day is coming. But until it comes, we live in between the ages. So Jesus has already come. He has already accomplished all that is necessary to rescue from sin and death. But the brokenness of our world remains until he comes again. And we live in the tension in between. Let me end our time very practically. As you're confronted by your own sin or you're suffering because of some aspect of our fallen world, where do you turn? Well, what do you run to? And, And actually think about it. Like when you're in difficulty... What is your tendency? If you truly want healing, you need to turn to this man. Your only ultimate recourse is a person. There's all kinds of good programs and good books and good things to do in order to grow and change yourself and the world, but if they are not utterly bound up with the person of Christ, they are transient and insufficient. There is no program, no truth, no system they can fix what is wrong with us. But Christ can, and he has, and he is. Did you notice when we read this chapter, there's not a single command in the whole thing. In speaking about the restoration of the world, in fixing everything that's wrong, we're not here told to do anything. Closest you get is verse 10, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. That is our first response. To rejoice in God and the servant He has sent. More than you need to do anything, you need Him. You need to understand so well what He has done that your soul exalts in him. He is what we need. Before the exile ever happened, Isaiah warned Judah that it was coming. He told them that rescue from the Babylonian exile, that wouldn't be enough. Whatever struggles you're having right now, fixing them, that's not enough. There is a deeper exile that every person in our entire world is subject to. This is our fundamental problem, and God has solved it by sending the servant to absorb the curse and clothe the world in righteousness. So rejoice. The Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all the nations. Let's pray.